Welcome to the City Collective Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Awesome, awesome. Chatty bunch. I love y'all. I like that about you guys. Um, We're just going to get into the scripture reading for today. And um, I'm going to be reading from Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. It goes as such. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and their thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is in the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Brilliant. Thanks, Gabby. So on this Thanksgiving weekend, uh, we are finding ourselves starting a new series again back into the Sermon on the Mount, as I mentioned. And on Thanksgiving weekend, we ask the question maybe too often, uh, what are you thankful for? It's that refrain that's queried around dinner tables across Canada on this weekend. It's a holiday about thankfulness. Then simultaneously... While thankfulness might be the theme of the weekend, we find ourselves overwhelmed by news of things like the terrorist activity that's taking place in the Middle East again, focused incursions upon the innocent, upon families, escalating tensions that have already been part of the region for an extended period of time. And I can find myself time and time again that Despite my desire for thankfulness, I can see how my attention outward can lead me to this place of, I don't want to think about it today. Uh, It prompts us to say things like, we can only control what we can control, or we should only worry about what's in our own backyard, or focus on myself and then I can be thankful, then I can be okay and it's not so bad. Yet, that isn't what we are called to do. Thankfulness is a really interesting lens to consider when we look at things around us, at least on a surface level. The things that we say we're thankful for indicate the things that we value. And if we look deeper than that, we might see our goals and our motives and our ideas guiding our response of thankfulness. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount and we see the words of Jesus, we see that these are words that are not meant to just linger up above us, but they're meant to penetrate our very being. They're meant to be something that looks at our goals, our motivations, our desires. They're meant to look at the practical pieces of wealth, of family, of judgment, of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of all of that coming together and seeing how our faith might be formed in the midst of it. Jesus was saying to his disciples... I'm calling you to live according to a future kingdom in the present world. And here's the thing. I know that it's difficult. And so 
He's saying with each of these little prompts that we're walking through, let me get into it with you. I know that it's difficult, but I want to show you that there's a better way. E. Stanley Jones says that the Sermon on the Mount seems dangerous. It challenges the whole underlying conception on which modern society is built. It would replace it by new conception, animate it with a new motive, and turn it toward a new goal. As we look at this upside-down kingdom Jesus is presenting, I want you to ask yourself the question as we go through it. What needs to be made new? Jesus compares and contrasts seeking the kingdom of God with running after all these things. Money, comfort, and status, and all of that are at the forefront of the conversation. It's the stuff that we worry about, right? It's, it's concepts, it's notions, it's actions, it's motives, it's goals. And Jesus is saying that all of them need to be flipped on its head in order for us to actually move into a better flourishing that he desires for us. And it's not just resistance for resistance sake. It's resistance for the adoption of a new way, a better way, founded in love and exemplified by Christ. This is what we're talking about. This is the Sermon on the Mount. A number of years ago, it felt like there was this, uh, this idea of geocaching that seemed to become really prevalent. Everyone was doing it. It felt like I don't think it's so, um, hot, such a hot topic anymore. But there is, there is an app for it, if you were wondering. And there is no doubt a very uh, persistent and passionate community that still do it. I remember doing it once with a bunch of friends. And going on this little adventure to find this, this cache, this geocache, and the, it was fun, you got to go do things, be different places, got to do it together. But I do remember getting to the cache at the end and it was a little anticlimactic. It was a little underwhelming. Uh, perhaps it was just because it was a note or it wasn't, wasn't something I was actually desiring. But this like note, a pat on the back, maybe a hit of dopamine because you found something in the moment. And then back to reality we went. And some of you might immediately say, well, it was about the journey. It's about the people that you're doing with. And in theory, I would agree with you. But there is something about the thing that you're moving towards having value. It, it, it doesn't just change the end experience. It changes our motive and our drive in the midst of it. Wouldn't you say? When we know that there's something valuable on the other side. Or at least we believe it. In the late 18th century, a group of treasure hunters, including teenage boys, started digging on Oak Island, Nova Scotia. They had heard legends and rumors about this buried treasure from pirates, uh, Captain Kidd or, Ca or Blackbeard, who had hidden a valuable treasure deep underground. And they believed that there was an intricate, intricate system of traps that were protecting the treasure. Over the years these treasure hunters, they dug up a series of deep shafts and tunnels that became known as the money pit in search of the rumored treasure. They encountered numerous obstacles, all of which led them to believe because these obstacles are there, there must be something valuable on the other side of it. There must be something that is this trap system protecting it and keeping us from it. They invested significant time, money, and effort into their quest. But despite their persistence, they never found the fabled treasure. In the years that followed, various expeditions and groups continued to 
search Oak Island, and they used increasingly complex levels of technology, and yet nothing was found. And as of September 2021, no definitive evidence actually indicates there is a treasure to be found. And this makes me think that there is something about the value we place on what we pursue that drives our commitment towards it. Jesus uses the language for where your treasure is, then there your heart will be also. In verse 19, the first refrain of what Gabby read for us this morning, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin, some uh, translations use rust in that spot, destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. And as Jesus is prone to do, Jesus doesn't placate his audience with half ideas, with half idioms. What he does is he actually just engages with the reality of it. He doesn't say, if you have a treasure in mind, then make sure it's in a good thing. He says, when there is a treasure that you hold, it is an inevitability. Whatever it is, wherever it is, it tells us more than the treasure itself. It tells us about your heart. But what does it mean to treasure something? It means to look at something with, with beauty and, and, and fill your heart with it. it. To treasure something is to say, if I have this, it's all worth it. And if I have this, then I have worth. If I have this, then it's all worth it. And if I have this, then, it, then I have worth. That is what it means to treasure something. And everybody has something, money, career, status, romance, family, marriage, all of the above. And you're looking at it and you're saying to yourself, if I could have this, then all of my hard work, all of my energy, all of my pursuit would be worth it. And I would have worth as well. I love a good sci-fi fantasy series, but the one that sits at the pinnacle for myself and many in this room would be Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And within that narrative, I think Tolkien so beautifully presents this idea of misappropriated treasure. And we see it through the image of this one called Gollum. If you've never watched Lord of the Rings, it's your fault. You should have, you should have watched it. This ring, it's enticing to others, it's seemingly indestructible, it's beautiful, it's powerful, it carries status, and everyone who wears this ring calls it my precious. Everyone who wears this ring comes under its power. The idea of idolatry and the deceitfulness of wealth which is in the scriptures, Tolkien engages in this story as this being becomes a slave to the very thing that it treasures. It even transforms this being to be one we know as Gollum. 
The story of the hobbit and the ring and is one of how it consumed him to his very core. To be a picture that is different than he ever imagined for himself. And it's a picture for us to consider that when we have misplaced treasure, we're not simply affected by it, we're consumed by it. When we have our treasure in something other than Jesus, we're consumed by it. And here's the thing, we've all got the desires and the thoughts and the feelings of Gollum within us. What do you treasure? What is your precious? This is what Jesus is saying is at the center of everybody's being. That in their very soul there is a treasure that we are in pursuit of. A treasure that we are desiring. There's this precious something that you've looked at and you've said, this is of so much value to me that I'm going to pursue it with all my being. And this is the thing that I have. If I have it, it'll make it all worth it. But this is what happens when we go after treasure. Once, uh, once you're there, once your soul treasures it, affection is given. And then you're going to do everything to get it. Attention is fixed. And then you're enslaved to it. Allegiance is made. The first part of our text might be about treasure. But it becomes incredibly clear that this is about the heart. And it's about the idols that we choose to give ourselves to. At the beginning of the text, it says, where your treasure is, your heart is also. But when it comes to the third section of our text this morning, in verse 24, it talks about the way in which we have given ourselves over in the mastery of our lives. You cannot serve two masters, God and money, where your treasure is, your heart is also. So it's more than just a nice thing that you're in pursuit of. It's something that you have bowed towards, you've given your life to. It's this idea of idolatry tree treasures becoming that itself tim keller he says that a counterfeit god is anything so central and essential to our life that should you lose it your life would feel hardly worth living if you're wondering what is a counterfeit god what is an idol in your life could you apply anything to that definition for yourself and do you see the difference between a healthy idea of treasure and something that becomes an idol? Because true treasure provides worth. But what do we even see within the, the story of the Lord of the Rings? Idols transform our worth to something that it's not. And in fact, if true treasure is meant to provide worth, then idols transform our worth into this thing of worry. Next week is where we talk a little bit more about anxieties, fears, and worries. It's the next portion of our text. And it's the outcome of having the wrong kind of allegiance and affections that we'll be talking about. But with idolatry, you're anxious if you don't achieve whatever it is that you're, you're striving after. And if you do achieve it, you're anxious about losing it. It's this perpetual state of worry that you find yourself in. And it's a dangerous game. But this morning, when we look at our text together, I want you to look at the three different sections with me. Verse, starting in verse 19, we're looking at the idea of affection. We're going to be looking at the idea of attention and the idea of allegiance. 
verse 19 provides us this question, what is your affection? It can be really easy to over-spiritualize this and to even over-spiritualize this text. But simply at the beginning of this text, Jesus is unabashedly coming after our stuff. He's coming after our things, the material possessions of our life, our need for the accumulation of things in this world. And let's be clear, Jesus is not saying that poverty is the means to righteousness, but he is saying that the accumulation of wealth with the drive and purpose of misplaced treasure is dangerous. And Jesus is doing something particular. He's, he's speaking to an outward reality of what we're doing. The accumulation of material possessions. And he's using language of moth and vermin and rust to speak of the finite reality of those things. But as he continues in this opening section, he turns this outward reality to an inward focus. And he's more concerned about heart condition. Where your treasure is, your heart is also. And the accumulation of wealth and material possessions can be a deeper idolatry that we often overlook. Keller, he talks about two kinds of idolatry. He talks about surface ones and deep ones. Surface ones are often the easiest to address. But the thing is, Calvin, he says that our hearts are idol factories. So, what happens is you deal with the surface idol. Let's say the accumulation of wealth. that You, you really like a specific thing and you, you gather a lot of it. And it's a focus of your life. Your affection is fixed upon it. And you're like, that's so bad. I'm just not going to accumulate that one thing anymore. In a lot of ways, we deal with our surface idols on a daily basis. That's the thing that we can recognize and we can deal with. But what Jesus wants us to do is different than simply dealing with our surface idols. Jesus isn't, isn't, uh, isn't Buddha. He's not trying to eradicate desire. He wants us to reorient and reflect what is actually taking place within us to be pursuing the way of Jesus. Something that is life-giving. Something that is freeing. Everything that we are, everything that we can, he wants to be oriented towards serving the kingdom. And he wants to get at these deep idols in our hearts. And these are the things that can often define our decision-making. They can form these surface idols. And they are the places where our affection is held. So for example... A surface idol could be something like the accumulation of wealth, but the deeper idol might be a need for status amongst others. You might actually stop trying to pursue, pursue accumulating wealth, but instead you're in spaces where you might be thinking you're being generous, but you just want people to notice what you're doing. These, these deep idols are motives behind the actions that become our surface ones. So yes, we need to pay attention to what's on the surface, but Jesus wants to take care of what's deeper because that speaks to what is your affection. What has your affection? And affection is, I would desire, I, I feel like I want to give myself towards the pursuit of this. When you have affection towards another person, you're pursuing them, you're after them, you're giving yourself to them, time, effort, energy. And the same goes with our affections in this world that are deeper idols. I want, I want people to notice me, so I'm going to do everything I can to be noticed. Whatever form that takes. 
I want to have control over my life, so I'm going to do that at whatever cost and whomever gets in my way. It doesn't matter because I'm serving a deeper idol. This is what Jesus is trying to get after. Surface idols do matter, though, because they reveal deeper idols. And they ultimately answer the question, I believe this is what will bring me satisfaction and flourishing. If you're trying to identify what is it that answers that question, that brings satisfaction and flourishing in life. Something like materialism that Jesus deals with right off the bat is a reflection of idolatry, not the root. Like I said, you can stop accumulating things that still have the root of human status be your treasure. This passage has less to do with materialism of humanity and more to do with the masters of our hearts. And Jesus wants us to see the limitations of these treasures, of these masters. Look at the pictures that he presents. Think about moths and rust and vermin destroying things. Where do moths eat away at clothes? Where do moths get at things? When they're put away in a closet not to be touched again. And this is what often happens to these false treasures that we pursue. They're short fix things. We get a high, we get a good feeling out of it for a bit, and then we put it in our closet for another time. But it's like one of those things that we don't ever really go back to. And it sits there and it sits there. And maybe one day when we're at our deepest, darkest moment, we're like, I'm going to go back to this thing that seemed to provide satisfaction in a moment. And what we will find is that it does not matter anymore. It has lost its value. That time itself depreciates the values of treasures in this world. Even within an an economic sense, we see that the next thing is always the best thing. You look at stories like Blockbuster and Netflix and how they were at odds. Or you see something like Nike coming into the picture when Converse and Adidas were at the highest part of the market share. The next big thing was the most important thing. That if if, if value was placed on something, it was only going to last for so long. What's the next new thing that seems to be the ultimate thing and it soon becomes the forgotten thing? St. Clair of Assisi says, we become what we love, and who we love shapes what we become. If we love things, we become a thing. If we love nothing, we become nothing. Surface idols, they are often falling away just because of time, the breakdown of our day-to-day. Here's the thing, surface idols can't stand the test of time. Even the language of rust is really interesting. Because how does rust take place? It is something that is in an environment that gets hit over and over and over again. And is that not the story of our life? That each and every day we are bearing the brunt of our our, our lives. And eventually when we are bearing the wrong treasure as our pursuit, rust begins to form. What has your affection? Because where your treasure is, your heart is also. So what Jesus is saying is the greatest gift that I have given to you is myself. In Hebrews, the writer uses the language that we are a royal priesthood. 
In the Old Testament, God says to the Levites, the priests have something unique about their station. He told them that they shall have no inheritance in the land. That their attention was not to be given to the material. And this isn't a dualistic thing, that this isn't about spirit being good and physical being bad. It's about the reprioritizing of our affections so that we can function in a material world. And it's not about putting yourself in a place of forced poverty. It's not about giving up our relationships or our desires. It's about making sure that the supreme affection of your heart is Jesus. Think of it this way. If we are called to be the priesthood of God, just like the Levites were given no inheritance in the land, it was because for them, God was saying, he is enough to the priesthood he said you shall have no inheritance in the land for the Lord your God is your inheritance that the gift of God is so big that there's so little room for other things when God himself is your treasure in him you will have nothing that your soul longs for he will be the fulfillment And if that's our affection, let's say we answer that question well, what has your affection? We need to move to the second idea that Jesus presents. What has your attention? And Jesus uses this idiom that is more familiar probably to uh, um, ancient Near East culture than for us in our Western modern day experience. And he talks about the eye. If you can put that, that passage on the screen. Having a good eye or a bad eye was, was a common manner of speaking when Jesus taught. And the phrase, a bad eye, is often spoken of as something that is stingy or greedy in other places of the Bible. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The word for good in this verse is translated as generous in many other passages of the Bible. Uh, Specifically in the Proverbs, it talks about this idea of the eye. Whether it's the evil eye or it's the good eye, our understanding of it can be really limiting. When in fact, when it's talking about the evil eye, it's talking about greed. It's the way we consume things for ourselves. Versus a good eye is a generous eye. We see the possibility of the world and we engage in it to see the goodness of it come about around us. So Jesus was using the ordinary language of his day to point out how much better generosity is than stinginess. And at a baseline, we would say, yeah, I know that. But this is why he's asking the question, what has your attention? Because often your attention provokes your action. I can't be generous towards something that I don't even notice. And Jesus is saying your heart and your eye are in line with one another. Sinclair Ferguson writes that fixing the eye and fixing the heart amount to the same thing. Focusing our attention and concentrating all our energies on something. Jesus is giving key principles on our treasure. And he's talking about how we handle our money. Because he talks about the way in which we act with it. We act with generosity. It's like making a deposit into heaven. Then he talks about having a good eye which lights up our whole lives. While having a bad eye makes our lives dark as if it might fall apart. And what, what the point is that Jesus is trying to make is I want you to think of it this way. 
we have these eyes that receive light. That light comes into the eye, hits the retina, and we're able to then move in a room. We're able to move our body because we can see the things around us. If there is, if the eye is working, that is the case. If the eye is not working, when light comes in, it does not matter. And this, this is a fascinating thing for us to consider if you're a follower of Jesus. You might be in all the right spaces. You might be doing the right things. You might be actually reading your Bible and talking to people. But the question that Jesus is presenting is what has your attention because your eye is the place in which the attention is shown. That is to say, either your eye is working or it's not. You could be having light around you and still not be having light within you. That the eye is the place where light, light enters. And when we have light enter, we're able to move and act and respond and have our attention move in such a way that our bodies are responses of generosity like Jesus is inviting us into. But when it is not, the light might be hitting around us, but we are stumbling around in the dark, grasping at the next thing that we can feel to give us meaning. It's almost like this quick fix society that we live in feeds directly into this idea. So it could be something like this. I'm reading my Bible so my friend might know that I am. I'm raising my hands so that girl might notice in the room. I'm serving in the church because I need to earn approval. Doing things in spaces where light is present, but my eye is not working to receive it. My motivation is lost. My attention is not in the right place. Alexandra Horowitz says that attention is an intentional, unapologetic discriminator. It asks what is relevant right now and gears us up to notice only that. Where is your attention? When you look out into the world, do you see people around you as possible pathways for self-fulfillment or people made in the image of God worthy of Christ-like generosity pouring out of you? Jesus says, we need a generous eye. So how can I give myself away for the kingdom of God? Not how can I get something from the things that I see. So Jesus asked questions of our affection. He asked questions of our attention. And then he closes the idea with the questions of our allegiance. Worship team, you can join me at the front. What has our allegiance? He says you can't serve two masters. As hard as we try, we can't walk down two paths simultaneously. Some translations use the language of mammon. This, this idea that wealth is regarded as an evil influence or false object of worship and devotion. When I was reading this, I found it really interesting. When I think about the things that are competing for my life, I wouldn't put money as the natural contrast to God. I would think, okay, we're talking about things that are competing for my attention, God and the devil. Feels like the natural connection point. 
But it isn't the conflict that Jesus is talking about. He's saying that the conflicts you face every day is God and your stuff. Your affection, your attention, your allegiance. The struggle that you will face each day is the deep idols of depreciating treasure. It's not an ignorance or an abandonment of our wants, needs, and desires. It is making sure that we're answering that question, what is your affection? What is your attention? Or what has your attention? And what has your allegiance? That it's answered considering who Jesus is and wants to be in our lives. That the only place where you can find a flourishing existence that our soul actually longs for is through a relationship with Jesus. Paul writes in Galatians 1, I am astonished and extremely irritated that you are so quickly shifting your allegiance and deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. It's Galatians 1.6. So we ask the question, what has your affection, what has your attention, and what has your allegiance? Whom do you serve? The one choice that we have is who will be your master. And as far as I can tell, Jesus is the only one who says this. He says, come to me and find rest. In the New Testament, there's only two things that we're told to flee from, and one of them is idolatry, saying that it will ruin your life, yet it is there every day because no one can serve two masters. Jesus is doing this. Jesus is challenging our goals because our goals have become our gods. Here's the thing. Jesus is, says when he's talking about moths and rust, those things, they eat away the treasures of the world. But when those are the, the treasures that we wear, the treasures that we pursue, we are eaten away along with it. Jesus wants us to know every treasure but me will insist that you die to receive it. But Jesus is the only treasure who died to welcome us in anything else that you make supreme value in your life will ask you to die. But Jesus says, I died for you so you might find life. The gospel revelation is meant to set us free. And this is a plea to us to realize that we have traded intimacy with Jesus for the riches of this world fleeting, shallow, moth-eaten things, things like money. And perhaps I've done us a disservice by not talking about money enough because Jesus talks about it plenty. Because money is part of our discipleship. Money is part of the ways in which our hearts are formed and shaped. Your money is an indicator of where your heart is, is what Jesus is saying. That which you hold as value, your money and your spiritual life are connected. Mark 4.19 says that the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The deceitfulness of riches chokes your faith and the pursuit of riches paralyzes your faith. In the pursuit of material things, I feel like we often say, I'm going to put my faith on pause. 
I've got to go deal with my business. I've got to go deal with my education. I've got to go deal with getting my life right on the financial front. And then I will engage in church. Then I will engage in faith. Then I'll engage in community. But here's the thing. When we actually become that space in all that we do, we are paralyzed by the deceitfulness of wealth. And when you hold still, it's not like everything remains the same our muscles begin to atrophy. We lose strength that was once there. We lose mobility and focus. We lose thought and intention. And soon we find that even when we want to come back, it's not where we were. We, we have lost this natural response of even generosity. It's funny how many times I've even thought to myself about a time that it felt like easier to be generous when I had far less financial resources at my disposal, for some reason, generosity felt easier. Because it wasn't about the amount. It wasn't about the item. It was about the heart. It was about the deeper idols that I have fallen prone to in my journey of faith. And the gift of grace, the gift of Jesus, is that even when I fall short, I can come and find a good God ready with open arms, full of grace to say, try again, come again, do again all the things that you have desired in your heart to pursue a new way, a better way, a flourishing way that is found in Jesus. That where your treasure is, your heart is also. So find me as your treasure. That's the invitation. You can't serve two gods. You can't, can't go down two paths. That we have to ask, where is our treasure actually found? And how is it guiding our life? If you don't know that question, ask the three that we talked about this morning. What has your affection? What has your attention? And ultimately, what has your allegiance? And perhaps a place to look at is our money. What do you do with it? What do you do with your time? What do you do with your resources? What do you consume with your eyes? All these different things. But remember this. Misplaced treasures ask you to simply die. But heavenly placed treasure finds a Savior that died for you and invites you into new life. Put your trust in me, Jesus says. Make me your treasure. I wonder that this morning talking about our treasure is a difficult thing in culture. There's so much of our heart that's given over to good things, to practical things, to necessary things. But Jesus is asking time and time again in his Sermon on the Mount, don't make those the ultimate thing. Keep me at the forefront. I'm the greatest treasure that you could ever ask for. I'm the greatest treasure that you'll, that you'll ever need. I am the one in which you will find the life that your soul longs for. Find rest in me. Find strength in me. Find hope and new life in me. So this morning, I, I would invite you, ask some of these questions. And if you find that they lead you to a different place of where your treasure is, know that you're not too far gone. In fact, you're in the exact place where Jesus is so willing to meet you. That his grace and his love for you is unending. 
and he wants you to find the freedom that your soul needs. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace this morning. For all the ways that we can say thank you, we are grateful. We ask for the deep idols of our heart to be revealed. For the way that we see the world and see others to be reoriented towards you. And for us to consider the thrones of our heart and consider where our allegiance lies. We pray that there would be courage that rises up in this, this place this morning to confront the idols in our lives. That there would be freedom that would be found. Freedom from a longing or a need for the accumulation of wealth or material things. That these fleeting things would not have a hold on our heart, but we'd find rest, we'd find security, and we'd find hope in you. Jesus, we ask for breakthrough so that our reliance isn't on the things around us, but upon you and you alone. Reorient us this morning. If you've got something on your mind that you know you're holding as your ultimate treasure, I would invite you, bring that to the forefront of your heart. And if you want have your hands extended, I want you to think of it as if you're offering it to God right now. Jesus, this is the treasure that I've held with too much of my affection, my attention, and my allegiance. I offer it to you. Take it from me. I want you to fill my hands. May we pray that prayer this morning. May you feel actually unburdened, that you might actually feel a lightness. As Jesus takes that which was never meant to be the ultimate, and he comes in and removes the burdens, he removes the shame, he removes the guilt, he removes all that was not meant for you and provides the peace, the hope, the joy, and the rest that your heart longs for. your new work within us this morning, oh God. We pray for freedom. May you be our treasure. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it encouraged and blessed you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.